Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Andres Jimenez, and I'm the Senior Director of Government Affairs for Citizens Climate Lobby. On behalf of our group and our co-host, the Environmental and Energy Study Initiative Institute, we want to thank you for joining us today for a briefing on climate resilience in the real estate sector. We have a great panel for you today, but before we begin, I want to introduce and thank our co-sponsors. Representative Zeldin from New York's 1st Congressional District and Representative Chris from Florida's 13th District. Congressman Chris serves on the House Financial Service Committee, which has jurisdiction over the National Flood Insurance Program, a program critically important to Florida. He also sits on the House Science, Space, and Technology Committee, which oversees climate change and environmental research at NASA, NOAA, and the EPA. Congressman Chris is also a proud member of the Bipartisan Climate Solution Caucus and co-chair of the Coastal Community Caucus. Congressman Zeldin serves on two committees in the United States House of Representatives, the Financial Services Committee and the Foreign Affairs Committee. He is also a member of the Bipartisan Climate Solution Caucus and the co-chairman of the Bipartisan Long Island Sound Caucus. So please join me in welcoming them today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, it's an honor to be here. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity and all of you for coming out today. Uh, I want to specifically thank the Environmental and Energy Study Institute and Citizens Climate Lobby for working with us to arrange this briefing today. Uh, and I want to thank my friend, Congressman Lee Zeldin. We both are coastal congressmen, if you will. And so the issue of climate change is very important to, uh, to both of us and, and all of you. Most of all, I want to thank our panelists for being here today. We have some uh, very special people with uh, tremendous knowledge. Uh, Ryan Coker from the National Institute of Building Sciences, John Miller from the New Jersey Association of Floodplain Managers, and a dear friend of mine, uh, Brandy Gabbard. She's a realtor and a new member of my city council in my hometown of St. Petersburg, Florida. So please give them a round of applause. Now, to some, this may not sound like a particularly exciting topic, uh, but to, to me it is, and I know it is to the congressman. Uh, uh, Tongue-in-cheek, it's kind of a hot topic. And uh, the reason that's the case is climate change. We have seen evidence over and over again, uh, increasing every single year. And as a Floridian, we see the power of our hurricanes increase exponentially. Uh, we had some bad ones this past year. Uh, but it's inevitable that this is going to continue. And I think the opportunity for all of us to be here today gives us a chance to learn uh, again some more about this important issue, how to face it, how to confront it, and how to deal with it, because we have these wonderful experts that we're going to hear from on this panel today. So thank you all again. It's an honor to be with you today. Well, it's great to be here co-hosting with Congressman Christ. I too have a district located on the water. I, I have a district that's almost completely surrounded by water. Uh, there are only maybe 13 miles or so on the, the western edge of the district and the rest of the district, you look at eastern Long Island. Geographically, it's the eastern half of Long Island. So that's the first congressional district of New York, the greatest congressional district in America. And I, that's not a slight at all. Uh, there's nothing wrong with being representing the second greatest congressional district. Uh, but we're, we're very proud of the areas that we uh, get to represent and call home. A citizens climate lobby 
uh, and EESI uh, both invited us to co-sponsor today's program. Uh, I have a very special place in my heart for the approach uh, that these organizations take. I have met, so I got to Congress in January 2015. I probably met with CCL 30 times personally. Uh, and the approach of first off identifying what kind of an office it is that you're working with, because some will be very open-minded, some not so much. Some will understand the issues that you're there to talk about, some are willing to learn. And trying to not just develop a very strong, productive, healthy relationship with that member's office, uh, but advance the ball however possible on whatever you're passionate about. The Bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus uh, would not have been created and would not have grown to the number it now is at without the way that these organizations approach members on the Hill uh, and ensuring that Republicans and Democrats are both coming to the table and talking through solutions cause we might not have the same idea uh, of how to ensure a clean air and clean water for our constituents, but when you talk through it, you'll find a lot of common ground that you didn't realize existed. And dialogue across the aisle is a huge step forward in figuring out ways to address our changing climate, to provide for a better environment for our families. Uh, so Charlie and I serve on the House Financial Services Committee. One of the top priorities of this Congress is the need to reauthorize the flood insurance program. And you're going to be talking about coastal resiliency, and I'm, uh, that, I'm really excited that you're here to talk about coastal resiliency because when you're moving the ball forward in Washington, uh, there are a few districts, you could even try to argue, that would benefit more than districts like that we represent. Coastal resiliency is incredibly important for homes, uh, for businesses, for local governments. The investment that we make, and not just recovering from the last storm, but to rebuild stronger than you were before, for us, something that you might have heard of, uh, if not, it's called the Fire Island to Montauk Point Plan. Now you all have heard of it. It's a little over a billion dollar project that includes everything from mitigation, uh, the ability to raise homes, to raise businesses, uh, to the need to secure uh, our barrier, because if Fire Island, for example, was gone, uh, all of a sudden my home, right now I live about a, a quarter mile or so from the ocean, uh, that would change quickly. One storm can result in my home being hundreds of feet from the ocean. That's how important coastal resiliency is and how personal it is for families like mine and my neighbors. The other thing, too, is that people who uh, look at districts that have, I mean, my district includes the Hamptons, but not everyone lives in a home that's valued at a quarter billion dollars. Yes, we do have homes that are valued that high. We have one, one guy has a house that's 110,000 square feet. My entire, like, neighborhood could probably fit inside his house. I live in an area where people are, you know, uh, lower middle to middle income, uh, struggling to make ends meet. And the reauthorization of the flood insurance program to make sure that it is fiscally solvent, that it is on a pathway, so that every time there's a storm, you don't have to go bailing out the program, that you have a planned long term. 
making sure that the maps are right, but also rewarding for mitigation. You care about coastal resiliency, the ability to maybe increase your, your boiler to a higher floor. It's a priority of people live in the city. For homes that uh, should be raised and for the taxpayers, they save, as you all know well, at least $3 for every $1 that's invested in mitigation. I have a bill with Carolyn Maloney that passed the, the House of Representatives uh, that we need to get th over the finish line over in the Senate that has strong bipartisan support. Uh, and uh, we definitely would appreciate if I could put a, a shameless, selfless plug, uh, but I would say, you know, for us, you know, it's important for all of us, I guess. It, any of your conversations you have while you're here storming the hill, to reauthorize the flood insurance program, but to also pass the, the Zeldin Maloney bill, which was added to the House passed version, uh, because it will also uh, provide mitigation credits so that individuals who invest in mitigation will see directly on their policies. But really why uh, we're here uh, is to say welcome and thank you. Uh, welcome to the Hill today for this purpose, but thank you most importantly for your efforts uh, to build bridges. You might have heard that there's some partisanship uh, at, on the Hill. I've asked crowds, with the, the last Congress, there were, it was a Republican Congress and a Democratic President. And I'd say, well, take a guess, how many bills would you say were passed by a Republican Congress signed by a Democratic President? And the answer I get most often is zero. Well, it is actually well over 350 bills passed by a Republican Congress signed by a Democratic President. There were some real bills in there, like reauthorizing the Zadroga Act, and there was a big Medicare bill, and five-year transportation bill that I'm sure you're all involved in, an education bill. But people, they heard about, take the Zadroga Act, for example. Everybody heard about when it wasn't getting done. But you know what wasn't news? When it actually got across the finish line. There's partisanship here, but there are people who are here who want to work on both sides of the aisle on areas of, of interest that are really important to our district, important to our country. And whether it's co-sponsoring a bill, or co-sponsoring an event like this, or, or letters, or op-eds, there's a lot of things that we can do. But I would say on this issue, there is a 0% chance that you would have the type of progress that you've seen in the House over the course of the last couple of years in building bridges where possible. 0% chance of being where we're at right now, if not for these great organizations hosting today. I've seen it firsthand. Uh, when I did an interview, I did an interview for the New York Times about CCL last year, and the reporter was eating it up. She couldn't believe it. Like, I was just, I was praising this organization like it was the best organization on Capitol Hill uh, because of their approach. Um, some people are more open-minded than others. You take notes, you do your homework, you're likable, uh, you're engaging, you're smart, uh, and you're helping move our country forward. So thank you for being here. Thank you for everything you do.
Uh, I'm going to introduce our, our, our speakers that we have today, who are to my left, obviously. Um, first up uh, is Brittany Gabbard, who is a council member uh, who was sworn into the St. Petersburg City Council's 2nd District seat in January 2018. Uh, in addition, Brittany serves as a prominent realtor with the firm Smith & Associates Real Estate in St. Petersburg. Prior to public office, she served for over a decade in leadership. Uh, uh, decade, she has over a decade's experience in leadership with Florida state, local, and national real estate associations. And she has previously uh, briefed the governor of Florida and his cabinet on these very issues, including the effects of flood insurance accessibility for communities. Uh, next uh, is Ryan Colker, who is vice president at the National Institute of Building Sciences, where he leads the Institute's efforts to improve the built environment through the collaboration of industry stakeholders from both the public and private sectors. He directs the Consultative Council, which develops findings and recommendations on behalf of the entire building community and transmits those recommendations to Congress and the administration. Prior to joining the Institute, he served as Manager of Government Affairs for the American Society of Heating, Refrigerating, and Air Conditioning Engineers. Uh, third, we have John Miller, who is a Water Resources Engineer and Legislative Committee Chair of the New Jersey Association of Floodplain Management, which uh, he also helped found. He is the Vice Chair of the City of Lambertville, New Jersey's Planning Board, a member of the City's Emergency Management Council, and is the City's FEMA Community Rating System Coordinator. Mr. Miller currently serves as a Fellow in Senator Robert Menendez's office, where he works on flood-related issues while pursuing a Master's in Environmental Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, please join me in greeting our speakers, and uh, uh, the first to present will uh, be Ms. Gabbard. Thank you very much. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, as mentioned in the intro, I get to wear two hats before you today. Um, as a realtor working for over a decade in a coastal community and now an elected official making decisions that impact almost 260,000 people, I'm honored to be here today to discuss an issue that is vital, vitally important to my community and countless others, namely my 1.2 million realtor colleagues across the country. I want to say a special thank you to Congressman Christ. Uh, he reached out to me and offered me this opportunity, and I want to thank all of you for coming to take part in this important conversation. It's my belief that resiliency is a tool that we can use to make things better and more equitable for our communities. Our property owners, those who choose to invest, develop, and use real estate to drive their portfolios and impact the overall tax base. Resiliency, at its core, is the ability to prepare and plan for, absorb and recover from, and more successfully adapt to adverse events. Across the country, realtors and communities are currently working together to proactively seek solutions. In cities everywhere, you will find realtors who are working with buyers and sellers, renters and investors, and who are beginning to ask many of the same questions that we're asking here today. Is real estate still a good investment in a world where environmental impacts are evolving and there is a chance that what is affordable and sustainable today may not be so in the future? I think we can all agree that these are hard questions to answer, many times because the available risk information and resources are limited. There are some very specific things that Congress can do to help. I believe that by us sitting here today, we're beginning to tackle the first item. We need to quantify and understand the cost of doing nothing at all. Can we afford to stick with the status quo as it pertains to issues such as sea level rise? Can they incentivize public-private partnerships and loan programs that include a mitigation component, similar to those that Fannie Mae currently offers for energy efficiency? 
Can we invest in more re reliable risk mapping technologies, such as those that are used in North Carolina that I know we're going to talk a little bit about later? Um, we also need to reinvest in our aging infrastructure. And finally, we need to support national and private insurance options and flexibility. I want to take a few moments to talk about my city, St. Petersburg, Florida. Um, as was mentioned, I was just elected to the St. Petersburg City Council, um, sworn in on January 2nd. And we are located in Pinellas County. Uh, it's one of the most densely populated counties in all of Florida. We are actually ground zero. When it comes to the number of property owners that are affected by flood insurance reform and sea level rise. The Tampa Bay region has nearly 700 miles of shoreline. 3.2 million residents and over 50% of the population lives less than 10 feet above sea level. Our economy is closely tied to both the Gulf of Mexico and Tampa Bay. And we generate over $170 billion in economic impact from those two bodies of water. As you can see, my city alone has approximately 60 miles of coastline frontage, and we're surrounded by, on three sides by water. 48% of people live within a special flood hazard area. And those are all the little blue houses that you see on there. Those are all of my residents that live within those special flood hazard areas. 95% of the district that I represent, which is about 30,000 people, all have, um, are all in the AE zone. You can't discuss resilient impacts on a city without talking about socioeconomic disparities. In 2015, over 22% of our population was below the poverty line. A large number of our jobs are tied to hospitality and service industry, which are historically hard to recover post-disaster. Many of these residents have been in our community for generations, and many are renters. Having a high percentage of renters in your community makes small business recovery especially vulnerable because as we have seen in other disasters such as Katrina, most renters do not return to an area after a major disaster. We have two very large neighborhoods with over 2,000 approximate homes each that lie within repetitive loss neighborhoods. And once again, one of those is in the district that I represent. In various studies and reports, our region has been deemed as one of the most vulnerable regions in the world, susceptible to flooding and rising sea level. Okay, so full disclosure, I'm not a scientist. So, um, you know, when I'm handed a chart like this, uh, it takes me a little while to digest it, but um, what I see here is some very good data from NOAA that actually um, shows that we have an issue with uh, the, from 1990 to 20, or 2100, a projected sea level rise just for my city alone. Um, this information was collected by my city through um, one of the oldest tide gauges that actually NOAA has in the southeast region. They've been collecting this data since 1946. And what they see is that over the last decade, or in the last many decades, we have already been rising about an inch per decade. They use four different adjusted projections to account for various condition fluctuations. However, they recommend, based upon this data, that our community should plan for between one to seven feet of sea rise by the year 2100. Luckily, though, I live in a very progressive and proactive city. 
In an initiative led by our mayor, Rick Christman, and city council, they acknowledge the threat and they're working diligently to protect our city and residents so that we can sustain a community for generations to come. We have a long way to go, but we have begun to create a culture of sustainability in everything that we do. In 2015, our mayor issued an executive order that created the Office of Sustainability and Resiliency, which works with all city departments, businesses, and the community to develop innovative environmental solutions that foster equity, a vibrant community, and shared prosperity. In 2016, our city council unanimously approved an allocation of BP settlement funds for an integrated sustainability action plan, that which was a vulnerability assessment pro project partnering with our county government and an energy efficiency and retrofit analysis. This demonstrated the city's commitment to sustainability and resiliency, including a roadmap to 100% clean energy transition. Then in 2016, we were very proud to lower our community rating with FEMA. We are now a Category 5, saving property owners over $1.7 million. Just this January, during my first week in office, I was very proud to also vote to begin an integrated water resources study that will help in our quest to lower our rating to a 4, which will provide an additional 5% discount on flood insurance premiums throughout our city. If we do nothing, the cost is too great. It's too great for our residents, because as sea levels inevitably continue to rise, regardless of the rate, the ability to affordably insure against risk and the lack of access to mitigation will continue to affect lower and fixed income residents, as the congressman was talking about earlier in his district. As an elected official, these are the things that I worry the most about. How do we protect the most vulnerable of us all? the single parents, the elderly, the disabled, and how do we help those that are living paycheck to paycheck try to keep a roof over their head, all while taking pride in living the American dream of home ownership, regardless of how modest that dream might be. It's our responsibility to budget, to invest, and to plan for long-range solutions so that people can continue to enjoy the beautiful communities that they have for generations to come. As a realtor, Brian was mentioning earlier, I have spent a long time working on affordable and sensible um, issues with the National Flood Insurance Program. I first got involved back in the days of bigger waters, and I'm sure many of you remember that, when the unintended consequence of legislation began pricing people out of their homes. Many longtime residents, like those that I spoke of before, that were giving, getting by paycheck to paycheck, woke up one morning to find flood insurance renewal policies 200 to 400% higher than what they were paying just the year before. Due to no fault of their own, they were suddenly finding themselves faced with the choice of losing their home or trying to sell it and who was going to buy it with rates like that. Now, when you fast forward to 2017, the program's up for renewal again, and we're faced with many of the same challenges. We believe at the National Association of Realtors that there are a few simple reforms that will ease the burden on our property owners. We need to create a climate of resiliency in the face of sea level rise and create a more robust program where more property owners buy into the program and therefore protect themselves. The first issue, as we had heard earlier, was lack of access to mitigation resources for our communities and our property owners. Financial assistance is limited, 
We need to incentivize lenders to offer loan programs that would assist in mitigation, much like current programs that do the same for energy efficiency. The approval process uh, for a lot of the mitigation programs that currently exist are difficult. Most people uh, would never be able to navigate the bureaucratic red tape that these go through. Um, I heard a story earlier today where uh, there was a floodplain manager that was very excited that he um, got through one of these for someone in eight months. So if it took him that long, how long would it take the average person? Many times, um, homeowners are actually offered the assistance after they have already come out of pocket to rebuild their um, home after a disaster. A lot of these hurdles can be overcome by prioritizing the ease of the process, the access to the tools that are currently available, and growing public-private partnerships and leveraging those for more toolbox, more tools in the toolbox for our consumers. We also need accurate maps. Um, currently, maps do not reflect risk. Uh, two properties uh, are identical, could be side to side, but one could actually need to have flood insurance and the other not. I actually own a property uh, that is an investment property of mine that right across the street, a home very identical is in a flood zone. My home is not in a flood zone, so I don't have to have that insurance that someone else has to have deemed by their lender. Um, we really need to go back and make sure that we are mapping for individual properties and not necessarily broad-based mapping. Um, whenever you do the broad-based mapping, you put the burden on the homeowner to determine their individual risk by obtaining an elevation certificate and then going through a letter of map amendment process. And if you've never been through that, that is not an easy thing to do either. Congress can invest in the latest technologies to remove this burden on property owners and properly assess risk at a more granular level. And then finally, making sure that we talk about a long-term extension to the program that also opens for a more robust private market. Every month that the flood insurance program uh, gets these one-month extensions or, God forbid, lapses for a little while, it costs almost 40,000 home sales a year across the country. So the economic impact of these short-term extensions is great. We must reauthorize the program, we believe, for at least a period of five years. Longer would be better, but five years at least. In addition, we must encourage and get out of the way of private insurance carriers. They want to offer flood insurance. The duplicative and unnecessary federal regulations that exist on private companies that are already licensed by states and, grandfathered, and the grandfathered property owners who leave NFIP are then punished when they try to return because they're considered to not have a history of continuous coverage. We must open the door for a more robust private market. They want to play a role in helping to protect our residents. We believe that more low-risk property owners will insure because their rates will be closer to risk, and when more are insured, we have a better chance for better and faster recovery after a disaster. So with that, I will leave you with just, as I started out with, the ways that Congress can help. And I think that just by starting here today and having this conversation and this open dialogue, I'm looking forward to listening to uh, what the gentlemen here have to say as well. And uh, I thank you, and I'll look forward to your questions after.
Good afternoon. I uh, definitely appreciate the opportunity to be here today. Uh, as Brian mentioned earlier, uh, I'm Ryan Kolker, uh, Vice President of the National Institute of Building Sciences. Uh, first, let me give you a quick rundown of the Institute and why we're particularly interested uh, in this topic area. The Institute was actually established by the U.S. Congress in 1974 to really solve some of the deep issues within the building industry at that time. And so we worked by bringing together folks from the public and the private sector to address these challenges, identify opportunities for moving forward, uh, and bring those to the broad industry. Uh, we do that through a variety of different mechanisms. Um, we have councils and committees, as you can imagine, on any sort of topic uh, relative to the built environment, from finance, insurance, and real estate issues, to disaster and hazard mitigation, to tools that are used within the building industry, like building information modeling. And so, kind of with that broad background, Certainly natural, resource, natural disaster issues uh, have been on our radar uh, since the very establishment of the Institute. But I think it's become increasingly obvious that we need to address these issues. Uh, I'm sure many of you have seen uh, the next few graphs I'm going to show, uh, but 2017 saw 16 disasters causing a billion dollars or more in damages. If we look at that trend uh, across uh, recent years, uh, that trend is increasing. 2017 was tied as the most number of billion dollar disasters. And I think the bigger uh, piece of the puzzle is the actual costs of those disasters. As you'll see, 2017 far outweighed any sort of prior uh, cost relative to disasters. So we need to do something to address those costs and address the risks that folks face uh, with those growth in disasters. So back in 2005, I'm sure uh, many of you have heard this statistic, uh, $1 invested in mitigation uh, saves $4 uh, in future benefits. That was actually a study directed uh, by Congress for the Institute to conduct, specifically looking at investments that FEMA makes in mitigation programs. Now, we've seen that statistic provided uh, for any sort of mitigation measure uh, imaginable. And certainly that was a valuable uh, contribution to the dialogue on why we should be uh, investing up front instead of waiting for a disaster to occur. But we still had many questions that were left unanswered uh, by that particular study. What are the impacts of things that are done within the private sector to address uh, hazard risk? What are the impacts that building codes, a fundamental basis for providing resilience in a community, what benefit do they provide? And then looking at some of the lifelines and utilities uh, and transportation infrastructure, what impact does mitigation within those particular sectors provide? And so we really wanted to address the more holistic picture of what the value of investing in mitigation up front is. So we actually undertook uh, an update and expansion to that 2005 study uh, with the support of both public and private sector entities uh, to move this forward. We actually released the first set of results uh, from this study uh, in January, and hopefully that'll provide a bigger perspective uh, to the broad opportunities uh, to invest in mitigation. So we did go back and look specifically at federal uh, agency investment in mitigation, this time expanding beyond FEMA to also include Economic Development Administration uh, and HUD uh, available grants, uh, and found that those actually provided a $6 benefit for every $1 investment. And then looking to the private sector and opportunities that individual homeowners, business owners, uh, and developers have to invest in their properties, we looked at opportunities to exceed the baseline minimum code uh, and found that those that did that uh, resulted in a, in a national benefit of $4 for every $1 invested. Certainly that builds a bigger picture of the opportunities for mitigation. 
in addition to the national high-level numbers across all sorts of different hazards, uh, we also, also dug down into the individual hazards themselves to really provide uh, folks that are interested in uh, addressing particular hazards with an idea of you know, what the potential benefits are for those individual risks. And then digging even further, we looked at, uh, depending on the availability of data, either a county level or a statewide level, about what some of those mitigation opportunities are. And so being able to drill down to that level really tells the story to folks of what the real opportunity is uh, to invest in mitigation. I think one of the important things to think about uh, as we talk about the results from this study and the, the results moving forward is that we're, we're still not able to capture all the benefits that mitigation provides. So certainly the impacts on uh, educational pathways uh, that are disrupted uh, from a hazard event, uh, family heirlooms, uh, cultural resources within a community, the disproportionate impact on vulnerable populations, uh, pets uh, and their impacts, and certainly a lot of the ecological impacts that it has on the, on the surrounding community. And I think one important message uh, for this particular discussion we were only looking at the risks that we can quantify today and not calculating the, the, the changing risk in the future due to things like climate change. But it's important to really recognize how those benefits are quantified within into each individual stakeholder group. Who benefits, who bears the costs, and how do we potentially come up with a strategy to even those out so we get the best possible benefit that we can to achieve mitigation and uh, smoothing out that uh, cost-effectiveness curve. In addition to the two areas that I mentioned where we've uh, particularly defined results at this point, uh, we are looking at other uh, areas of mitigation that would really help to build out that conversation around where do we invest, how do we make sure that we're effectively achieving mitigation. Uh, so we're going to be looking at the adoption of building codes themselves uh, and the benefit-cost ratio for those. Uh, that's currently in progress. We should have results uh, for that in October. Uh, we're looking at the retrofit of existing facilities. Uh, business continuity planning, uh, which is certainly a valuable tool, uh, but uh, we currently don't have funding for that, but would be looking uh, to uh, complete that sort of work. Uh, looking at uh, impacts of mitigation within the transportation and utility infrastructure networks. Uh, and then public sector direct mitigation efforts. So thinking about Army Corps of Engineer levies, uh, National Weather Service, early warning systems, uh, and those sorts of things. And that will really help us build out the complete picture of where the opportunities are to mitigate, uh, where they make the most sense. But having just that benefit-cost ratio is not going to get the sorts of investments that we really need uh, in mitigation. We need to think about what are some of the strategies across government, across private sector, across financial and insurance institutions, that if we brought them together could collectively result in mitigation investments. So the kinds of things that Brandy mentioned relative to energy efficiency programs, what about a mortgage that incorporates resilience aspects uh, into the mortgage and provide that uh, as an opportunity and an encouragement for folks to invest in resilience at a state or local level? One important thing, you know, we're talking today about uh, buildings in particular, but one thing uh, important to recognize is that focusing on buildings alone uh, is not going to get community resilience. Uh, these are uh, two examples of uh, building owners that did everything right uh, for their particular property, um, but the surrounding community around them was not resilient. 
this poor uh, family in Galveston, Texas, had no grocery store to go to, no school to go to, no utilities. Um, a similar situation in New York City, Goldman Sachs building had power on, was ready to go, uh, but the subways were flooded, uh, no one could get there, uh, and so basically that investment was stranded. So if we don't think about the broad community aspects of resilience, we're missing the real opportunities. One kind of last area that I want to focus on is particularly addressing climate risk within the design and construction community in particular. Uh, as folks may know, uh, the current design and construction standards are based off of past events and past risks. So how, with changing climate, do we address future risks that may be uncertain uh, as far as their localized impact? So how do we transition the building, uh, design, construction, and even operations community to be able to capture those risks, understand those risks, and design and construct to respond to those risks? So there are efforts underway to really define what that process looks like. Um, there are certainly some valuable inputs uh, from the federal sector side to support that research. Uh, and I'll provide a few recommendations on, on what that actually looks like uh, in a second. There are activities uh, within the building industry that are going on to work collectively to address uh, resilience. Uh, this is an industry statement on resilience signed by 40 uh, building-related organizations that have identified the opportunity and the need to address resilience collectively uh, and to work across our disciplines, uh, across our various different stakeholders to really identify what the pathway forward is. So if you're at uh, an organization interested uh, in the built environment uh, and interested in looking at the uh, industry statement and signing on, I would definitely uh, welcome your participation. So let me get to some uh, recommendations that we've identified uh, through our work uh, on uh, disaster hazard mitigation and resilience-related issues. Uh, certainly, uh, first and foremost, is assuring that federal investments go towards mitigation uh, to re reduce future federal obligations in disaster recovery. Uh, I would also uh, recommend that uh, federal government encourage state and local governments to adopt and enforce the latest building codes. Uh, building code adoption and enforcement is a state and local issue, uh, but certainly the federal government and taxpayers nationwide have an interest in assuring uh, that uh, federal disaster dollars are protected and saved for, for the most uh, critical events. Uh, there are a few mechanisms to be able to encourage uh, adoption and enforcement of codes uh, at a state and local level. Certainly coordination across the agencies uh, within the federal government responsible uh, for engaging in codes and standards development. HUD, uh, Department of Energy, uh, FEMA in particular, uh, and NIST. Uh, and then any sort of federal funding that goes to communities should certainly include requirements uh, that uh, codes be adopted and enforced. Uh, I mentioned the need for research into incorporating climate risk into design and construction guidance. Um, encouraging innovative federal programs uh, through Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Small Business Administration. It really encourages investment in mitigation uh, in the private sector, uh, and removing barriers that would potentially hinder those types of uh, activities. Uh, we've seen uh, PACE, uh, Property Assessed Clean Energy programs at a state and local level being, start to incorporate resilience strategies. Uh, some federal agencies are not keen on PACE programs, uh, so that's one area that we would probably want uh, to increase discussion around. Uh, and then from a federal perspective, 
uh, ensuring that investments recognize the current and the future risk that those assets uh, will face over their entire life cycle. That's both a benefit for uh, the uh, federal infrastructure itself, uh, but it also builds capacity within the private sector to be able to bring those uh, ec that expertise into the, the broader building industry. Thank you. Um, as I was announced, uh, John Miller, I'm with the New Jersey Association for Floodplain Management. Um, we are a chapter of the Association of State Floodplain Managers. So I want to give you a look from a post-Sandy perspective. This is something that, um, as a resident of, of New Jersey, um, Sandy affected just about the entire state, if not um, flooding and wind damage, um, it was certainly an economic issue for the entire state of New Jersey. But I want to start with, um, I, well, let me overview what, what I'll be covering here. So I'm going to look at uh, Hurricane Sandy and the devastation to homes. We're going to take a look at the Federal Flood Risk Management Standard. Um, we'll look at the um, HUD's guidance that was just recently issued for uh, a community development block grant, uh, disaster relief with higher standards. Um, we'll look at the flood insurance program that's been mentioned in the last two uh, presentations, but the reform and reauthorization of the national flood insurance program. Um, what I'm studying in school and what my uh, capstone is, is looking at municipal bonds and the influence of climate change. Um, and then finally, local government's role in planning, adoption of higher standards, and the implementation of risk reduction. So I wanted to start with some photographs of sandy damage, because I think that sort of reminds us, what, why are we here? What, what happens after a major disaster? Uh, the first photo is from Leonardo, New Jersey. Um, and this is overlooking, um, in the distance, you can actually see the tip of Manhattan from this location. Um, this house lost its entire first floor. Um, and uh, it is, uh, it was just, uh, it's it very impressive um, in terms of the power of Hurricane Sandy and the, uh, the energy that the waves have. Um, some storms you get more inundation. Um, Sandy was definitely an energy event. Um, it, it really did quite a bit of structural damage. This is Manilokin, New Jersey. And um, once again, the, the power, this was not a demo project. This wasn't a, uh, a, you know, a, a raising of a home. This was, this was Sandy did all of this. Um, and this was uh, about six months after Hurricane Sandy is when we're looking at this photo. Ortley Beach, so we're moving down the coast here. We started in uh, Monmouth County, um, we went down, and now we're into Ocean County, New Jersey, and this is Ortley Beach. Um, people might know Tom's River Township. Tom's River is, and we'll look at this in a chart later, but it's a very, very exposed community to uh, flood risk. Um, this is an example of where you had that erosion issue uh, with Hurricane Sandy. The waves came in, the moving water washed uh, uh, the, the sand under the home from outside, from under the home. And you see how basically uh, a masonry 
portion of the home just collapsed. Uh, masonry is good under compression, uh, weight loading, uh, but it's really bad in tension, and that's what it experiences when, uh, when you have wave action. And finally, we saw examples, uh, many examples, of where homes were not only uh, moved, but actually struck another home, an adjacent property. And uh, this is Holgate. This is the very southern tip of Long Beach Island. Um, and uh, this was a, a traumatic, and, and even the yellow house kind of really, really uh, is a, a dramatic example of, of Hurricane Sandy's power. So how did uh, the administration at that time, the Obama administration, how did they respond to Hurricane Sandy? It was such a large event. Um, and there were a number of um, actions that the administration took. There was the president's uh, climate action plan, um, which uh, basically it, it, it looked at a bunch of different climate risks. Um, we had the Hurricane Sandy Rebuilding Task Force, which was made up of um, all the federal agencies, uh, representatives from those agencies, led by um, HUD um, in, in 2013. Um, then we also pulled, uh, the, the president pulled in people from around the nation to form the president's uh, uh, state, local, and tribal leaders task force on climate preparedness and resilience. So these were, these were major initiatives that came after Sandy. And Sandy was really a um, an inflection point in terms of the nation um, uh, looking at climate change, looking at future risk. And in coming out of um, these uh, activities came the uh, Executive Order 13690 that President Obama issued uh, that contained the Federal Flood Risk Management Standard. And these were standards that, and I think you heard Ryan say that um, you know, when we, when we do codes, when we do standards, we generally look in the past and see what has happened. We need standards that look into the future, and that, that's what this standard was, was accomplishing. So there were three different ways that you could look at um, higher resiliency. Um, the first one had to do with um, basically using science and using... Um, uh, projections of climate uh, uh, changes, uh, sea level rise, those type of things, um, and using that in, in uh, the best available science. Um, so, uh, and then there was an alternative to use um, a two or three foot elevation, depending on whether it's a non-critical and a critical facility, um, and then looking at the 500-year. Uh, floodplain, which is the 0.2% annual chance flood. So these were all, and not only looking at the elevation, but also the horizontal extents. You know, how wide is that higher floodplain? So uh, President Trump actually rescinded um, that executive order only weeks before we had the impacts from uh, Hurricane Harvey. And then, of course, in the 2017 hurricane season, we also saw Hurricane Irma and the, the massive uh, destruction of Hurricane uh, Maria. So um, sometimes um, things remind you of the importance of, of uh, you know, in this case, higher standards. And HUD came out with rules very, very recently um, that basically took that federal flood risk management standard and actually improved it a little bit. It, 
Um, it requires um, the use of local uh, standards if those standards are higher, and it also uh, uses either the, um, the three feet or the 500-year uh, flood elevation, the higher of, of uh, one or the other. So that's basically... Um, it, it was a really, really promising thing that we saw coming out of HUD. And HUD gets quite a, 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 a amount of money. I, I believe this particular guidance that came out was for around $7 billion of CDBGDR. Um, we're going to see more. We're going to see more money coming out of HUD for the massive um, disaster. I believe the estimates we're seeing, um, you know, coming out of... Um, you know, the, the 2017 hurricane season, something like $300 billion in damages, and we, we're seeing um, Congress uh, 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 supplemental appropriations of around $130 uh, billion. So, um, so let's talk about the National Flood Insurance Program. I, I deal with this. Um, I used to uh, do models, um, make mapping. Um, I've been involved as a local official. I've been involved uh, in policy making and, and that type of thing. So, uh, the National Flood Insurance Program is, is um, very important in, in the world that I operate in. Um, would you do, do you realize that the National Flood Insurance Program, which was initiated in 1968, we still have the same standards? In the national flood in, in the national flood insurance program now uh, that were in uh, existence in 1968, there have been no higher standards. There have been no required freeboards. Now we'll, we'll look at in a couple slides in, in a little bit um, where communities and states have taken their own initiative in applying higher standards, but. The program itself does not require higher standards. It, it, you're building, you can build to what's called the base flood elevation, which is where the maps say this is the elevation of the 1% annual chance storm, the, the so-called 100-year storm. Another thing that's really important in this reauthorization, and again, the Senate, we're, we're stuck in the Senate, right? The Senate hasn't uh, made progress on this uh, reauthorization. Um, but one of the huge points, and it's already been made is uh, by Ryan, um, I just heard him say, talk about mitigation. And I would like to define it as front-end mitigation. Let's not wait until everything's destroyed after an event. Let's do mitigation beforehand. It actually is cheaper to do it that way. The, the economies of scale are better, and you're not dealing with all the other issues that go on after a disaster when you're recovering from a disaster. So we need to front load mitigation. That's a really important point. Um, this is a house elevation going on in Union Beach, Monmouth County, New Jersey. You can see the cribbing that they use. They, they have a universal jack that lifts the home. This cribbing is holding it up there. Um, hopefully it won't be up like that very long because uh, you know high winds would be an issue. Uh, but uh, this, is, this is an elevation happening here. One of the other things that happens after a disaster is um, a tax-based loss. Um, fortunately, the federal government, fortunately for New Jersey and local and communities in New Jersey, uh, the federal government for a while starts to pick up some of those tax-based losses, but that's limited. That's only for a short period of time. 
Um, and then you, it, it, you get into issues, and there are some communities in New Jersey now, five years after Sandy, that don't have their tax base back. Um, and they are getting assistance from the state of New Jersey with the state of New Jersey oversight. Um, but that's something to keep in mind that even, you know, you may have heard from Katrina or, um, you know, this is, of course, Sandy-affected towns. Um, the revenue gets very affected by, by the storm event. And what I'm looking at in, in my capstone for my master's is um, a, a credit downgrade threat as a what I'm calling a non-regulatory driver. It's a market driver here. Uh, this is an investor-driven issue uh, for uh, flood, mit flood risk mitigation and sea level rise adaptation. So the most recent um, report that came out from Moody's uh, basically looked at um, the issue of exposure, looked at the, the community resilience issue, and it will be impacting the way that municipalities are, rate, are credit rated, um, and when they issue bonds, this is something that the credit rating uh, agencies, the credit rating companies, are basically going to start looking at this. And I think this is just the start of what we're going to see, and this is going to grow. Is they're going to ask these towns, you know, they're going to ask the broker, they're going to ask the towns, the issuers, what what are they doing about these uh, growing concerns? What are they doing about sea level rise? What are they doing about flood risk? So this, if you haven't seen this report, this is one to take a look at, um, and it has been covered well in, in the media. So New Jersey has some bad grades, right? We, we always hear about... Um, uh, the, the ASCE report card on infrastructure. This is another report card that Climate Central did. Um, and these are unfortunate uh, grades, but I think they're pretty accurate um, for the state of New Jersey. We haven't done any resilience planning. At least, you know, we have a new administration in the state of New Jersey. We're expecting, you know, some of these things to get done. Um, but uh, we, are, we are behind uh, some other states in terms of uh, sea level rise and resiliency issues. And some of our exposure is this, right? This is just, I pulled Google Earth. Um, these are, uh, this is Long Beach Island as you enter on Route 72. And it's just wall-to-wall -wall buildings. There is not, you know, everything's been built on um, and this is a barrier island. This is an island that wants to move, right? It's, it should be a temporary landform. Uh, we have now made this that we have to keep doing beach nourishment. We're going to have to do something probably with bulkheads. Who knows what's going to happen, right? We, what, what will happen to this barrier island? And New Jersey has some, uh, you know, we're number three in terms of claims paid dollars. Um, but even some of our counties rank up much higher than other st whole states do. Um, and I really want to point out uh, Tom's River Township that is, has more flood claims paid dollars than the whole state of California. I mean, it's remarkable um, that one municipality, one municipality in New Jersey is above the entire state of California. And here's what we're expecting in the future. This is showing that same area of Long Beach Island with three feet of sea level rise. Again, likely not happening before 2050, but happening in this century that we're in right now. This is what, this is what we're expecting. So 
um, pretty remarkable changes. So finally, I'm going to leave you with some things. And we do need, you know, while there is federal uh, interest, uh, federal investment issues, uh, federal regulatory issues, there's also towns, you know, going states and locals that need to um, deal with these things. And I, I, I give you an example of the city of Hoboken in New Jersey that got hit really hard by Sandy uh, in 2012 and ever since has been doing a lot uh, to predict, to uh, address the future and to deal with everything from building codes uh, to planning codes, I should say, um, to uh, you know emergency management activities, to rebuild design, which was a HUD program, um, and, and just really, really not just say we've recovered from Sandy, on we go, really dealing with their future risk. Um, so um, I worked on this um, post-Sandy uh, assistant grant. Uh, they got five grants um, that were for different purposes in resiliency planning, and this was the resilient building guidelines. What this does, and this is online, is um, not only look at you know substantial damage, which is which is a, uh, a definition uh, for FEMA recovery, but also um, looks at what homeowners can do, even if they have minor damage, in terms of retrofitting their properties uh, to make sure that there's less damage after after a storm event. Um, and then looking at some communities that, um, these are states that, and I got this from ASFPM, but these are states that, 22 states that have uh, adopted higher standards, a free board standard, and um, that's equaling, uh, from a population standpoint, 41% uh, of the U.S. population. So uh, this does cover a lot of the towns. And you heard about the community rating system. Uh, Brandy talked about being a class five, which is pretty awesome. I have a class, I'm the community rating system um, coordinator in my town. We're only a class seven. So I, I, I defer to her, uh, to Brandy, in terms of uh, going further into the program. But um, I call these the good kids, right? This is what I call the good driver discount program of the flood insurance program. Um, Basically, most of the good kids are adopting a higher standard, um, and that's like just about 70% of the communities that participate in the community rating system have a higher, higher than that base flood elevation standard. And combining that with the state, so you take the states, um, you take the CRS communities, you pull out the ones, you don't, you don't include the ones that have already been included in the state higher standards, but you add the ones that are not included in a, in a state higher standard, and uh, upwards of 62% uh, of the U.S. population is covered by uh, one foot or more of these uh, free board higher standards. So finally, I want to leave you with, you know, who's watching some of this stuff? You know, you're, you're adopting free board standards. It's making your community safer. You're having, you know, over time, you're having less damages. But is anyone looking over your shoulder on these higher standards? Is this making any other difference? And there's Moody's, right? They have a 2015 report on the Hampton Roads area of Virginia, the region of Hampton Roads. Um, so you have Virginia Beach and Hampton, and Hampton, and um, you have uh, Norfolk, you know, which is very well known for, for its chronic flood issues. Um, 
But they're looking at this. This is something that they can look at. They can use it as a metric to say, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing about some of these future risks? So I point out that some of these standards, and maybe I should have titled my presentation as, as you know, higher standards. Uh, but that's the, that's the message I'm giving you, is that higher standards are going to be used in multiple ways, not only making your uh, community safer, um, but in rating your community, they're going to look at things like this. So I'm going to leave you with that. Um, this is a photo of, um, of Seabright, New Jersey, that has a flood wall. It was originally a trolley uh, 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 right-of-way, uh, but it, they do call it a flood wall. Um, but the flood wall was overtopped. Um, and you can see what, mas what happens to masonry structures when, when waves hit them. So thank you very much. I appreciate your attention. Thank you once again to all of our speakers uh, for their perspectives and all the fantastic information we've heard today. Uh, next, we will be opening up uh, for questions for the, for the audience. Uh, there's a microphone roaming around, so if you have a question, uh, raise your hand, and we'll bring the microphone to you. I see one in the back there. Thanks very much. An excellent presentation. I, I must confess I've sat through many of these presentations that you, you guys are hitting the ball out of the park and trying to give us a guideline on what, need, what can be done, in particular here in New Jersey. Okay reference where, where where you need to work. My question for all three of you, and maybe Ryan, it's to you. I heard uh, Deputy Administrator of uh, FEMA speak many times to this issue of repairing destroyed properties only to a minimum standard, not being permitted under maybe Stafford Act or other restraints to put federal resources into building to exactly the standards you guys want to see. A, can we get that change? I understand there was some movement on that in, in, in a supplement appropriations. And B, can we make consistent pressure so that it doesn't fall backwards? Yeah, I think you, you certainly hit um, one of the challenges uh, exactly, is how do we, when a disaster event occurs, how do we learn from that immediately and uh, identify uh, opportunities to address uh, those particular risks? I think one of the particular areas, taking that even one step further, is allowing folks to use insurance money, whether that comes through NFIP or a, a private insurer, to actually build elsewhere, recognizing the risk that that specific parcel faces, and using that, those funds to make a better decision on where they should actually be located. I mean, the only thing that I would piggyback on that, um, speaking to the point of uh, using those funds to help people relocate, is um, for communities to be able to use mitigation funds to possibly purchase those properties and then use them for green space. Uh, because those then um, those green spaces would help us be able to improve our community rating even more. Um, because you know it's very very hard to get to a category three, um, and that's one of the things that you actually have to have is green space in your community. So that would be something that uh, I think communities would be interested in looking at. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I I have this expression I like to use. I said we don't have a flood problem; we have a land use problem, and. <laughs> Um, that's what we're that's what we're uh, encountering now. It's um, it, we have built in areas that are at high risk, and um, 
we're paying the price for that, right? Um, so there are there are programs like the CRS program. It is hard. Though. It is hard for um, a local government that depends on uh, a tax base to uh, aggressively go after and do voluntary buyouts. I mean, it may be the best solution, and, it, and certainly from a first responder standpoint, um, from a municipal services standpoint, I mean, there's, there's some real positives to doing buyouts, but um, what a lot of elected officials see is, is a loss, you know, rateable, and, um, and that, you know, but I, I think that's why you need to look long-term, too, and, uh, you need to think these things out um, and and do it, you know, in a strategic way. Uh, is is looking at these different mitigation techniques? Uh, yes, um, I see the gentleman in the middle there. Uh, to your to your other side, sir. There you go. <clears throat> um, uh, David Conrad, uh, consultant in water policy area. Um, but I uh, was really impressed with the design competition that was put together after Sandy uh, that brought in uh, architectural firms, engineering firms, and um, I think there was a certain brilliance in having that exercise because we are, th these disasters that we're having now uh, are really a learn should be a learning exercise for for our uh, well for the world. Uh, if we're predicting that we have a lot of transitioning to do as we go forward, um, then uh, putting some of the uh, best minds to work on uh, the techniques that we're going to use to help communities instead of doing things completely on a ad hoc basis, but actually do some thoughtful planning. And I think Hoboken is very excited about what they came up with. Uh, they, uh, they're still going to be implementing a lot of those ideas going uh, well into the future. So the question is, um, should we institutionalize that kind of thing, at least for, a, for a, you know 10 years or something like that after some of our major disasters? Um, in order to engage more uh, of the best thinking that we can marshal. So I, I want to point out, David took some of the photos uh, that were in my presentation. Uh, we, he and I drove, um, this was six months after Sandy, down the coast over two days. Um, and some of the photos, we weren't even allowed to park the car. Uh, he took them you know, while I was driving and, and took the shot, so I appreciate that. Um, the rebuild by design um, that you're talking about, again, a HUD initiative, um, I think was really, really healthy competition um, and coming up with some very um, unique uh, uh, type of projects. And, and what we have going on in New Jersey right now is uh, we have a Meadowlands project and then we have a Hudson River project that includes Hoboken, and Weehawk and, uh, and Jersey City. Um, the only, the only challenge, I would say, of such a thing is getting a concept, which is, you know, uh, uh, nice, nice renderings and things like that, and actually getting it down to 
um, to building it um, and, and going through, and that's what they're going through now. The, the Meadowlands project had to be downsized uh, for the money that it got. Um, Hoboken, or I should say the Hudson River uh, project um, has a lot of ancillary things that need to happen with it. Um, so they need some more money too. Um, to get that project realized, but um, overall, I think it's a good approach, to, and, it, and it raises so much good awareness, right? That you have a whole bunch of firms uh, putting together uh, interesting. I was actually on a team at the time looking at amphibious homes. We we didn't make it to a final round of that program, but the idea is that you know you have some of these. Um, in, in Highlands, New Jersey, a very poorly named community because it has a lot of lowlands. Um, but um, the Highlands community has a lot of these bungalows that are very small, and could you somehow retrofit those so they would be buoyant during a flood event? Again, you couldn't do it in an area with wave action. It would only have to be inundation. And it is a little crazy, right? Um, and you would have to have utilities that are, you know, have extra play in them so they could go up and down. But these are these are good, like, these are creative, um, good uh, things to ponder. And, and we will have to get more creative in the future. Um, I think we, we have to focus on that collaborative approach of bringing together expertise from uh, the federal sector, uh, state and local sectors, uh, community uh, advocates, citizens, uh, you know, architects, engineers, hydrologists. It's the only way we're going to be able to solve this problem. And so bringing together you know, everyone to identify what the issues and the solutions are is the only way we're going to get to community resilience. I mean, you saw the picture of you know, the, the guy who did you know, the, the great house, um, but you know, the, the infrastructure around him wasn't there. Uh, and so you know, we have to have that collaborative approach to be able to identify solutions uh, at a local level. I mean, this is the first that I'm hearing of this, but, um, you know, I didn't come here today just to give information. I came to learn as well, so thank you for bringing it up. Um, you know, I definitely would agree uh, that we need to have very broad community conversations, continue leveraging those, you know, private and, uh, you know, public partnerships and making sure that, you know, we're incentivizing people to want to get involved, to invest in kind of forward thinking, no matter how kind of out of the box it is, uh, you know, technologies, because um, this is a big problem and it's going to take all of us to solve it. I don't think anybody has, you know, the magic bullet answer for any of it, um, but uh, thank you for sharing that, because uh, I'll definitely be looking in and uh, calling John for more information on that. Good afternoon. Oh, sorry. Uh, Good afternoon. Stacy Trinidad. Um, what you guys talked about how as a community we should be resilient and it's not just up to the government to be able to come up with programs and like for you guys to be able to do everything as um, citizens and possible future homeowners we need to also take in consideration the fact that we need to be resilient as well what is the likelihood or how would you advise uh, the average citizen to be able to afford, uh, we already have high interest rates, we already have high more, uh, insurances, um, premium mortgage insurances. How can an average uh, citizen be able to afford or even be able to implement the resilience um, models into the homes that we're purchasing that were built so many years ago if we already have high interest rates, 
high insurance premium mortgages. I myself own four properties and none of them have earthquake insurance because and 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 that taken in consideration that they already don't pay the mortgage premium insurance. So I could just imagine how hard it is for the average American to be able to purchase home premium insurance, earthquake insurance or flood insurance or any other things that we're trying to say that we should implement as part of our resilience. Well, uh, certainly as the realtor on the panel, um, I can speak to that because that's what I deal with every single day. Um, my community is what we call a built-out community. So we have much older housing stock, um, a great portion of it, of it is slab on grade homes um, that are very modest. And you're right, you know, how do we raise those homes? How do we help our everyday um, residents be able to continue the affordability? And that's where we go back to, you know, really looking for Congress to help with accessing these mitigation resources. Um, you know, kind of uh, breaking the bureaucracy with the programs, uh, helping to be able to, um, you know, free up and create those um, loan incentivizing programs that are going to uh, help our residents because, you know, over time it does get more and more unaffordable. And so, you know, that's something that we care about greatly as a community because those are often our most vulnerable <laughs> citizens. And so, um, you know, we really, we need that help from Congress to be able to uh, continue to open the doors to those mitigation resources, as we've all discussed. So take a look at um, what we call the SAFE Act. It's uh, S-1368. Um, and there's a provision in there that incorporated the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania's concept, and this is uh, my advisor, Howard Kunruther, um, who basically uh, said, you know, we should, uh, we should help people with loans uh, to do mitigation instead of just helping them with, with their flood insurance premium from an affordability sense. Um, let's help them with loans uh, do mitigation, uh, you know, say, say raise a home, um, and then you have a reduced flood insurance premium, and then you basically use that savings to help pay off the loan. Um, it's a great concept. Um, it's something that um, people don't have that upfront cash, as you're saying, um, but could, could we get them help? Um, and, and again, reducing their exposure, which is a great thing in itself, but then you're also reducing the flood insurance premiums. Uh, I would like to uh, amplify the question on rebuild by design that you raised, because after Hurricane Sandy, there was another program that HUD sponsored with $2 billion that were left over from the, from the Sandy appropriation. And that was the NDRC, the National Disaster Resilience Competition. I don't know right now if either Florida or communities in New Jersey received. The biggest grants were awarded to New Orleans and Louisiana and Norfolk. But, but they are doing a lot of the work uh, again, bringing in expertise from the Netherlands who have learned how to live underwater for centuries. And uh, I'm wondering if any of the speakers can relate or, or have information on what's going on with the recipients of the NDRC funding and whether there can be some learning 
and some sharing of their experience. Of course, all the staff at HUD that designed that program are gone and haven't been replaced. So it would be interesting to see whether you think that can be captured. I mean, I've got an easy answer. As for Florida, um, I don't believe that that's anything that we have had any uh, part of. That I mean, the congressman's office, I don't think we uh, have been a benefit of any of that. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure exactly where you know the the programs are at this point either, but certainly something that we should get a handle on it and share lessons learned if we can. Um, New Jersey did get a little bit of money. I I, I don't want to go into the full story, but uh, but uh, we we did get a little bit in that round, um, but but much smaller than than the initial round, which was for the Sandy affected area. But you're, you're correct that we do need to learn from each other, right? We, we need to pick up, and this is why um, the New Jersey Association for Floodplain Management, we pull in people, we, we pay for people to come and speak to our conference from other parts of the country because they may have experienced something, they may have encountered something uh, that is, is unique to us, and we do need to learn. This is gonna be a huge learning experience is, is kind of the nicest way to say it. It's going to be pretty expensive, uh, but we're all going to have to learn from each other on how to deal with these increasing risks. I've got the mic. <laughs> Thanks for a great presentation. I learned a lot. I found myself Googling while you guys were talking. Nothing about the quality of the presentation, but I was, I was getting confused between adaptation and mitigation. And this is a cross-sector question for you because my people talk about mitigation as something you do before so that you don't have to get around to raising houses three feet yep. as an adaptation technique. So just give me a sense for what your thinking is about are we talking at all about mitigation or is this all just a big adaptation exercise to, in the face of the inevitable? So um, it's, it's great you bring this up because um, in, in the floodplain management world, which I exist in, um, we use the word mitigation for what the climate uh, interests call uh, adaptation. So um, I have been shifting my word usage more to that um, adaptation, but you know, FEMA programs and others still use the word mitigation. So uh, just to be clear, most of what I talked about, if well, actually everything I talked about was adaptation coming from the climate science uh, aspect. Well, and so, so that's certainly one of the areas that we need to work on as we begin to engage the climate science community and the building science community to be able to identify what are the science needs to address future risks in design and construction. Is really having that communication of being able, well, if one person says adaptation, that actually means mitigation, and you know, figuring out that intersection between the climate science side and the design and construction side. And I, I do think that we use the two words interchangeably a lot, um, but I think for myself, I mean, it's easy, you know, when I'm wearing the two hats uh, from the city point of view. Um, you know, adaptation is more about responding to the future impacts and how we can plan and within our Office of uh, Sustainability and Resiliency, um, you know, we're working a lot on our adaptation. 
uh, but from the National Association of Realtors standpoint, you know, when we're looking at um, you know NFIP and the reform, uh, one of the things that you know we advocate for is mitigation resources. So I think maybe that kind of can separate the two a little bit, um, depending on which hat I'm wearing. Hello, thank you for um, a great presentation. Um, my question is kind of more related to the changes occurring currently in HUD. Um, specifically in the President's FY19 budget, um, there's a proposed elimination of the CDBG grants. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to um, kind of like how that pertains to mitigation and um, getting funding for community um, communities to focus on mitigation. There. Uh, so I mentioned, you know, our uh, study looking at federal investments in mitigation, um, including HUD, EDA, uh, and FEMA. And the sole program that we looked at from HUD was CDBG as the mitigation mechanism uh, for communities. So uh, that certainly feeds into that six to one dollar benefit. Uh, we didn't break it out, you know, by individual federal program, um, but it contributes to that overall six to one. So it's certainly a valuable. Uh, initiative to get mitigation out at a community level. So, and that was very well said, and, and maybe I shouldn't say anything, um, but um, uh, CDBGDR comes from the Stafford Act, um, and that's something that, you know, these supplemental appropriations that we've been seeing coming out of Congress after the 2017 hurricane season, that's where that's going. Um, so that isn't a budget issue. I mean, I say that um, without, you know, knowing too much about phasing that out or getting rid of it, but um, the Stafford Act is its own uh, its own animal that, uh, you know, gets gets triggered after a major disaster. And I'll leave that to them. <laughs> Hi, um, I'd like to add my thanks also to everyone else. Um, I was actually, my home was evacuated during Hurricane Sandy, and I went and volunteered for the cleanup at Rockaway Bay, so those pictures brought back some memories. Um, I'm a volunteer with Citizens Climate Lobby. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about um, carbon pricing, if it affects the uh, climate resilience in real estate or, or any drawbacks that you might see. So I, I will say it probably will eventually. Um, I think folks are still trying to figure it out. Um, one somewhat parallel that um, I can draw is in the energy efficiency space. Um, so we're certainly seeing um, increased interest in zero energy buildings, so buildings that create as much energy as they use. Uh, and there's an interest in actually expanding that definition beyond just an individual building level, but thinking about potentially at a campus level, a community level, or a portfolio level. So thinking about, you know, a hospital would probably have a difficult time getting to a zero energy building, but if there's a warehouse next door, uh, that warehouse probably has a pretty good likelihood of being able to achieve zero energy building. So combining those two, can you start to think about sharing um, energy generation and energy use to get to the same net benefit that you would expect. Um, so I could potentially, at some point in the future, um, start to see that interest in um, a, a carbon-focused strategy rather than just an energy efficiency-focused strategy. We have time for one final question. Um, so this gentleman here. 
Uh, well, I have two. I hope that's okay, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that's just fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also, would like to thank the panel. This was a really fantastic uh, set of presentations and conversation. And thanks to CCL, ESI, and our host uh, as well. So the, the first question I have for you all is, uh, from the perspective of developing mitigation and adaptation strategies, from a local level and from sort of a national level, how important is land use management in that conversation? And uh, second question, Ms. Gabbard mentioned uh, uh, NOAA tide monitors, and I was hoping you could comment on the importance of ocean and other environmental observations for communities on the ground in terms of developing their strategy, and again, as we move up to the state and the federal level. Well, to your first uh, question, I mean, absolutely, I think it's a land use management issue for our cities and municipalities and uh, how we uh, redevelop, how we grow, and how we grow in a very smart way and taking into account um, things like, you know, the, the tidal gauge that I showed and uh, making sure that we're looking at those things. Um, you know, in, in my city, we have an aging infrastructure issue that we're currently looking at and looking at, um, you know, rainfall predictions and using past uh, kind of, you know, historical data to make our budgetary decisions moving forward as to how we uh, invest in our infrastructure. So I think all of those things tie in together and uh, we definitely need to make sure that we are using long-term thinking, um, you know, as I showed with the, the chart up there. I think that was definitely well played. <laughs> <laughs> and write this one down. We don't have a flood problem, we have a land use problem. Yeah, um, I'm gonna I, take that home. Yeah, so um, absolutely, it, it, it is the crux of, of what we're dealing with. So um, land use policies, now I go back to the 1967 Senate banking report that talks about you know the, the, the start of this NFIP uh, and, and that it was basically going to cover existing infrastructure, or I should say interesting uh, existing building stock. Um, but the committee at that, or the, uh, the the banking committee at that time, was saying, "Well, you know, as we move ahead, it's going to be the states and locals and their land use will will do better things." Here we are. <laughs> well, thank you again. That concludes our briefing. Um, thank you all for coming, and please join me in thanking our presenters.